Life Audio. Hey, welcome to Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sigurd with Gospel App Ministries. Thanks for listening to Gospel Rant. We're number 38 on Feedspot's list of top 100 Christian podcasts. Thanks to you listeners who follow the show and give a good review. So, hey, thanks. Thanks ahead of time. We're in our new series, God's Love for the Unlovable. We'll be doing this until the end of the year. What happens, this is important, when God's love for the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely, and that's all of us on any given day, if we were just a little bit honest, bumps into those who clearly are not lovable, who are, not unwor- who are unworthy, who are unrighteous, unclean. I mean, our society would agree, and maybe you would agree, maybe your family, right? What goes down when God's love bumps into people like us? What does it look like, feel like? What happens when God's love bumps into the first murderer, Cain. Interesting, right? Curious? Well, you will be surprised. Well, we're going to take a short break and pick this up after a word from our sponsor. See you in a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So the story really begins with the two sons of Adam and Eve preparing sacrifice for an offering to God. And on the surface, that's wonderful. It's an act of submission and worship, right? Pretty good stuff after what happened in the garden. Abel the shepherd brings some of the firstborn of the flock, and Cain brought some crops. Both set up a burnt offering. The two children of Adam and Eve were so different. Cain was a farmer, and he worked the soil. Abel was a shepherd. And both bring God what will be called mincha, sacrifices or offerings. And at first, the narrative shows some hope. And here's the sons of Adam and Eve approaching God, apparently seeking his pleasure and favor, but in the gifts, in the offerings, there's still the smell of the fall, the stench of sin. We're not told what they knew about sacrifices. We just assume that they've been told or come to believe that God requires sacrifices in order to stay in in good relationship with him. We're not told that, though, uh, or to avoid the kind of punishment that their parents got, but we're not told that. We don't have any written guidelines. So I wonder, just speculation, educated speculation, if God never did require any offerings from them. He does later in Exodus. I get that. I'm just wondering if this is the way our brains are wired. If I mess up or I feel guilty, I've done something and I feel ashamed, I just know somehow that I need to do something to appease the person I hurt, to pay for the crime. It seems universal. You know what I mean? 
Burnt offerings seems to make good sense. I mean, maybe there were other humans around there who were worshiping their own deities. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, believe me, I'm just, I'm just asking. So what do you think? Let's assume that God did set that up with mommy and daddy, you know, Adam and Eve. We don't have the record of that, but let's say this conversation went down. Okay, you two, you messed up big time. I'm ticked, rightly so. And you can't get my favor until and unless you do some sufficient, by the way, enough sufficient offerings, perfect ones, actually. So you need to begin to pay off your debt, one offering at a time. And don't mess up because that just adds to your impossible debt, your sentence. Here's the direction for burnt offerings. Well, really? Does that sound like God? I mean, if it does, that confuses me. And here's why. I believe that all Adam and Eve had to do ever since Treegate was to look up into the gracious, forgiving, long-suffering eyes of God and ask for redemption. I mean, think of them looking up into the eyes of Jesus, if that helps. The curse was die, surely die. In the Hebrew, it's pretty emphatic. But we all know, don't we, that there will only be one truly sufficient death. And it's not Adam or Eve's. It's not a goat or a lamb. In the end, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, will have to pay for all of the sins of Adam and Eve equally, and mine, and yours. But the problem was they wouldn't look up into God's eyes. Their brains were no doubt traumatized by the episode. Shame and guilt rushed in. Boy, look, they had never experienced that before. We're kind of used to it. So they won't, or to be neuroscientifically correct, they can't look up into the forgiving face of God. It's brain science. They could only look down and away. So how will they ever know what God actually really thought about them? I mean, did the text ever say that God was wildly angry or wrathful or blew his top? Well, no, and in fact, it seems that God is very rational, very confident. And after what they did, yeah, check it out. So, and I would also point out that he didn't officially require offerings during the curses, right? Doesn't, doesn't that raise the question? So, the whole family, I'm going to suggest, is living in this subhuman state of emotional and relational insecurity, rejection. I mean, who am I? That's up for grabs now. They used to get that from God. Now, they don't know. So, they are now far more dependent upon each other's assessment for hits of being favorable, of being lovable, being loved, or feeling lovely or handsome. They are the classic insecure family. Textbook. Adam is more than not looking to broken, shame-riddled Eve to tell him how he's doing, who he is in her eyes, and vice versa for Eve. How do you think the kids are going to turn out in that kind of family? So security-voided boys... Cain and Abel, they start looking to God to pump up their sense of worth, value, identity, favorability, lovability, and so forth, right? That's good news. And we don't read Adam and Eve ever doing that, but their kids do. But still, why would God want to encourage the notion of his favor that it can actually be bought by a sacrifice? If only you were better than your parents, right? I mean, if you really, really did it enough and really devoted yourself to me enough, well, history can re be redeemed. Hmm. Really? That sounds a lot more like the Pharisees. So we know less about Abel, 
but I'm going to toss out there that Cain seems to me to be anxious, insecure attachment style. Attachment theory, I'll, I'll say a little bit. When he was an infant, he likely didn't get that sense of devotion from one or both of his parents that they really adored him as he was. Uh, so he cried and cried until, you know, hopefully one of the parents would come and soothe him. But I'm going to suggest that neither Adam or Eve had read that book on parenting yet. And they had their own emotional issues. So they didn't know how to soothe him or attune with him or to assure his infant brain that, that he was so worthy of their time and effort, you know, their smiling face would appear when he cried. Uh, and so his subconscious would go, I'm just not lovable. He, that's what he learned. So he learned if he wanted people to be his friend, to favor him, to love him, he has to do something. And he has to do it himself. Anxious and secure. So he believes that, per the attachment theory, I find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. I often worry that my partner or friends, they don't really love me and won't want to stay with me. I want to get very close to my partner, and this sometimes scares people away. And to the point, I think he feels that about God in his subconscious brain. Just play with that and, and, and you know, process that in your head. So he's thinking, I have to do something to get God to come close to me and smile at me. I'm crying out, enter sacrifices. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this really well. And then God will smile at me, love me. So I'm suggesting that there is a real desperate subconscious energy behind getting God's favor from this particular sacrifice. This is Cain's brain screaming to be enough, to be seen as enough by someone, anyone. And God's the likely candidate. Well, we'll see how that goes. And also, add to that, uh, it's a bigger deal because Cain was the firstborn, and being the firstborn was important culturally. He's feeling like he should be noticed more. It's bigger trigger for him. So then what happened? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Ouch! That's going to leave a mark emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. All right. Here's how we usually teach this passage. Well, Cain, kind of a slouch, he didn't bring first fruit, or he didn't bring a live offering. And everybody knows that God prefers that. Abel did. He brought firstborn sheep, right? And we know if you want, to, if you want God's favor, you better not mess around and be cheap. There are consequences. It's a formula. All relationships are like that. That's how we teach it. But it's just not that clear in this passage. So here's the thing. Up until this point, there's been really no clarity about what good offerings and bad offerings look like. Not that we know of. And this is years before Moses and the law was written down, so we don't have the prescription. And that would look something like, thus saith the Lord, because that's how they spoke back then, right? If you want to please me and earn my favor, cool, then here's what I want from sacrifices, A, B, C, D, E. So if you want to be my child in good standing, my favor, my protection, my bragging about you in the heavens, my blessings, don't mess this one up. There's consequences. But we don't have that. And plus, even during the time of Moses, Cain's offering is quite an acceptable offering, pleasing to the Lord. You can check out Leviticus 2 and 6 about grain offerings. Secondly, Abel only brought some of the firstborn. It seems at least from later law, that that was a bit dicey. God never says Abel's offering was somehow intrinsically better than Cain's. We've just assumed that that was the case. 
How else would you explain God's apparent dissing of Cain and Cain's offering? I'm going to get to that in a moment. So, Cain, in response, got angry. And we're told his face was downcast, meaning he's looking at the ground. Sounds like his parents. So I guess so. I get it. I mean, I'd be ticked off too, wouldn't you? If I'm correct about him being an anxious, avoidant child, this would make even more sense. The idiom, face was downcast, implies that like his parents in the garden, he he could only look down at the ground, not up into the eyes of God, into the measuring, positive measuring gaze of God, where God's favor is. And why? It's totally a sign of being an anxious, insecure child. There's shame involved, right? There's fear involved. There's anger involved. He's not feeling loved, accepted, adored, appreciated, and favored. He wants to. Anxious attachment style teens, for instance, externalize as a knee-jerk reaction. And so what happens for anxious attachment people is they blow up and they blame other people. It's not my fault. It has to be God's. So I'm going to hurt God. That's what, (laughs) it's not rational. That's just what we do. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, hold that, will you not be accepted? This is important. The Hebrew idiom accepted in this context probably implies to be experientially restored to favor, to become a secure son of mine, God's saying. Again, that's what he wants. If you do what is right, let's, 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 let's define that, right? What might have that meant if Cain had been secure, calm, and reasonable, <laughs> right? When was the last time any human had ever felt accepted that way? Well, Cain's parents, before the fall. And he had never felt that. And his brain was made to feel that. He's longing for that. So I'm believing that God was offering this poor, emotionally starved kid exactly what he needed and subconsciously was jonesing for. What did he need to do to get it? Do what is right. Does that mean to just be a good boy from now on? No, that's not going to work. I don't think he will. Or does it mean to do better offerings? I don't think so. Or do the one thing that your parents have as of yet refused to do. And the clue is it's the opposite of looking down. So curious, right? God just doesn't appear very angry here at Cain. In fact, he's right there. He is right in front of of Cain's face. So if Cain was being punished for being cheap and disrespectful of God, we might expect a fireball from heaven or some form or wrath or condemnation or punishment, but not a... In fact, God's reasonably asking Cain something very interesting, making him think. Why are you looking down at the ground, Cain? And the implication is, Cain, think. Why aren't you looking up into my eyes? into my measuring gaze. That's where the favor that you seek and long for is. (sighs) Well, Bible again. Now Cain said to his unsuspecting brother Abel, let's go into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Well, so what do you think Cain was thinking? I'm going to suggest that he wasn't thinking, that he was well into reactionary behavior, murderous reactionary behavior. There's no record or evidence of difficulty between Cain and Abel. It's just Cain's brain, likely flooded with chemicals, launched him into a severe fight-flight-freeze cycle, and he fought. 
he took his anger out on poor Abel. It's not reasonable. It's not caring. It's not righteous. His actions certainly didn't do a thing to gain God's favor, which is nominally what he wanted at the beginning of the story and was angry that he didn't get. So his subconscious trigger strategy doesn't work, and it makes it worse. All right. Now he's in for it. God certainly hates that. And being a just God, he requires quick and severe punishment. Cain's toast, right? Well, let's see. We're going to stop here again for a brief word from our sponsors. We'll be right back and get back to the story of Cain and Abel. Well, then the Lord said to Cain, and I think he's saying it calmly. That's how I'm reading this. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? Boy, that sounds so anxious attachment. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Right, anxious They're externalizing, he's blaming God. Today, you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Uh, We don't have it established, but this is a kinsman redeemer. God remains Cain's kinsman redeemer even after all of this. And the Lord puts a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod east of Eden. Look, if if God's angry and wrathful, it's really hard to tell here. Um, God doesn't need to ask Cain anything. He's all-knowing. What might he be asking Cain about the location of his bro? I can only think one reason. God seems to be trying to engage Cain so that Cain can begin to see his craziness, his acting out. This is not lacking justice or seriousness over the value of life. In the end, someone's going to die to pay for that crime. That's the way God's justice works. Cain's response is like an anxious child. It's not well thought out. It's reactionary. He's going to punish God Again, it's your fault, and it's reactionary. It's over the top. Not a smart thing to do in God's presence by any means. But again, God doesn't really react to the disrespect much, and it is disrespect. God curses Cain. One, you're driven from the ground, and two, the ground is going to be stingy with crops, and three, you're going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Anybody think that that curse is, well... Kind of out of whack. What's the penalty for murder? Death, right? Well, what's going on? Do you see pretty obvious evidence that Cain is acting out as an insecure adult? Uh, See the little phrase of Cain, and I will be hidden from your presence. First, God never says that at all. He's standing right there. And you could translate interpretively Cain's complaint. I can never look up into your eyes then. (laughs) Uh, that's what God's been trying to get him to do, and he's right there. He's saying, I'm never going to be favored. I'm never going to be accepted. And I would suggest that God's end game has always been for Cain to look up, to see God's still favorable gaze and be restored to favor, honor, worth, a secure attachment. 
This is God's love for the unlovable murderers. It's here. At the very beginning of the Bible. And Cain wouldn't look up, even when God pleads with him, humanly speaking, to look up. And now he's blaming God for not being able to. And he's, by the way, still able to. The story only makes sense if God is, humanly speaking, humiliating himself, really, uh, in order to bless Cain, to usher Cain into this higher, secure relationship that he had never experienced since the big mess. His love for the unlovable is pursuing Cain, as a great lover would. He's not waiting for Cain to come. All Cain ever had to do, just like his parents before him, was to do what is right, which is to look up, I'm suggesting, just to experience, to be washed with God's love for him, so much so that he can begin to feel it, even as an anxious, insecure child. And that'll take some time. Then God said he would be accepted. The insecurities would be dealt with by God himself, his brain rewired. And the firstborn of Adam and Eve would be restored to a place of honor that he no way deserved, but given freely by grace. Humanity redeemed, reattached to God into a loving, secure relationship with God again, paid for by Jesus. It's a high calling for the firstborn. I would even call it the double blessing that he was expecting. So until Cain really sees God as a benevolent and adoring God, he will remain insecure in all of his relationships, every one of them, just like me. He will never be who he could be, never satisfied. He'll always be blaming other people. He can only be Cain light, lonely, guilty, ashamed, paranoid. You know, they're going to kill me, acting out to punish God. It's your fault. That's the very one he wants favor from. All of the crazy things that you and I do on a daily basis, if we were honest, instead of just looking up to God. See, I would suggest that this is what God has always planned for Cain. This wasn't a morality tale on the benefits of doing really good offerings. Or to tithing to your church. God sought to restore Cain to a secure relationship that his parents had forfeited by not looking up. Wouldn't that have been a little bit better than an attaboy for doing a good offering? That, right, Cain's problem, as well as Abel, as well as his mom and dad, was that they had a self-imposed, insecure relationship with God. Subconscious, largely. And remember the big mess, the fall. No offering, no matter how good or expensive, had power to reattach an insecure child to God. Cain, the firstborn, I think was given a shocking opportunity to repair that breach. How? All he had to do was to look up, but he wouldn't. Even when God pleaded with him two times to do what was really right, which he could do, just look up and see. Cain, all you need is need. And this, I believe, is why God didn't favor him and his offering. I think he was initiating a great redemption opportunity for the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Cain could have rewritten history, uh, humanly speaking, but he didn't. He didn't pass the test and survived as a morality tale to all of us that we need to look up. And we usually teach it that it's all about good offerings for God. Yuck! Better, it's all about a love of God that pursues murderers, even those who murder their brothers in cold blood. All they have to do, all we have to do, is to look up to experience the stunning love and forgiveness of God. If he can love Cain, who would be unlovable? Right? One last brief point. God does seem to be saying to Cain that he's not going anywhere. In fact, God's going to remain Cain's protector. Do you feel that love? 
<sighs> it's not contingent upon Cain looking up. Cain needs to look up to experience it. He becomes his kinsman redeemer. Uh, check out 415. And note, he's never ejected from his presence. Cain chooses to eject himself. Anxious attachment. Well, in the next show, we're going to take a look at one woman who's perhaps even more unlovable, unworthy, and unlikable, uh, also in the Old Testament, even more so than Cain. What happens when the love of God for the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely bumps into the unrepentant, sex-addicted, God-blaming prostitute Gomer? What God does will likely shock you. Even if you heard the story before, I think you'll learn stuff. Let me know what you think about this entire series, Bill, at gospel-app.com. If you benefited from this podcast, uh, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, officially follow the program. Uh, again, if you've benefited from it, and I thank you ahead of time. Take heart, child of God. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hard-working pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.